Let's gonna have a seat. church. How you doing today? Uh, it is good to be back with you in this way, in this place. Hey, how many of you enjoyed our last series? You enjoyed the, the movie series? Yeah. All right. Well, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm sorry that today you got to put up with me without a soda and some popcorn in your hand. You're just going to make it through somehow. Hey, in a couple weeks, we know that there's a really big thing coming up here. Uh, in a couple weeks, we're celebrating Easter. And Easter is one of those days on the calendar that is huge for the church. Christmas and Easter are two biggest times of the year. And we always get a lot of visitors coming for that. So... With Easter this year, I want to invite you to experience Easter in the best way you can. So I've got two invitations for you. One, sign up to serve somewhere this year here at OCC for Easter. You can go to our website and scroll down through the buttons. And under the next steps area, there's a serve button. And you can click on that and just sign up to serve. And listen, that's not because we need you to serve. This is because you need you to serve. It is so good for your soul. You'll be so glad you did. When you get to meet people, you you know, if you're welcoming people in and you're one of those smiling faces in the parking lot or at the doors and you're helping people feel welcome and warm and invited here, it is just such a good thing for you. I don't want you to miss out on that because if you don't serve, you're going to miss out. Serve in the kids area. You're going to have a blast with the little ones. Also, the second invite. I want you to invite somebody to join you. Don't just invite them to come. Invite everybody can to come, but invite somebody to join you at Easter. So you're gonna, if you bring somebody with you, it just makes it that much better. So don't come alone, bring somebody with you, invite them to join you. Don't just say, hey, come to Easter at OCC. Hey, come with me. And that way they don't have to walk in here alone. They don't have to try and navigate the place alone. They've got somebody who can show them around, sit with them and be friends with them. So invite somebody to join you this year for Easter at OCC. It's going to be a great couple days. We've got a Saturday night service at five o'clock and then two Sunday services at our normal times. Well, we're not quite to Easter yet, but we are starting on this theme of grave robber. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of the resurrection stories in the New Testament. And one of the things we're going to discover is that when Jesus is at his most compassionate, he's also his most powerful. So we're kicking it off today looking at Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you want to follow along with your Bible, go ahead. If you have a digital device, you want to follow along on your digital Bible, you can do that. But we're going to have it up here on the screen. So Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 2. The highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. Now this phrase near death, we'd actually translate maybe a little bit more fully to he was almost dead. Like as good as dead. This person is knocking on the door of death. When the officer heard about Jesus... He sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. 
So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, this guy does. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Now, time out on that. This is so contrary to the way things were. The Romans had conquered the Jewish people. And so they were the oppressive ruling class. And they were pagans. They followed different gods, different religious system and all this. The Romans were not generally looked upon with favor. And so here you have these Jewish leaders saying, this guy deserves your help. Because this guy, this Roman guy, is an anomaly against all the other Romans. He has demonstrated dignity and respect to the Jewish people. He's gone so far, he built us a house for worship. Jesus, you, you as a rabbi should do what you can for this guy. So, following on in the story, Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my house, for I am not worthy of such an honor. Say, not worthy. All right, let's say it again, not worthy. There you go. He says, I'm not worthy. Now that is kind of shocking for a Jewish guy. Or sorry, shocking for a Roman guy. It'd be shocking for the Jewish people to hear a Roman say, I'm not worthy. Because of the Romans, they were kind of pompous. They were, like, they thought highly of themselves, especially military leaders. You would not hear one say, I'm not worthy of anything. They would think they were worthy of everything. But this guy says, I'm not worthy of such an honor. He says, I'm not even worthy for you to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, then they will do it. So here this Roman officer is demonstrating respect for Jesus, this rabbi who he's just learned of. And this guy has lots of authority, but he recognizes that Jesus has the spiritual authority. And so when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Everybody say amazed. All right. Jesus was amazed. What does it take for Jesus to be amazed? Normally when we're reading in the Bible and we see Jesus involved in the story and amazement in a story, it's because everybody else is amazed at Jesus. Jesus has done something and everyone's like, whoa. But here, Jesus is amazed. What's it take to amaze the son of God, the one who stepped out of heaven and came into this world? Well, let's find out. Turning to the crowd that was following him, Jesus said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Now, that's a pretty scathing rebuke. Jesus is looking towards this Roman military official, the centurion. And he says, that guy is the example of faith. But all you Jewish people who claim to follow God, your faith doesn't even match up to his. This pagan outsider has more faith than you. And that is what shocked Jesus. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Jesus robbed that servant's grave. God would have died without Jesus. Now there's some shocking things going on in this story. First off, I mean, let's think about this. This Roman military officer showing such compassion for his slave. This wasn't because he was like, oh man, if my slave dies, if my servant dies, then I gotta get a new one. He could have forced anyone into that role. He could have purchased another slave easily. Now, this guy who has rank, social rank, economic rank, political rank, military rank, I mean, you, you name it, this guy is many, many, many rungs up the ladder from this servant, and yet he has compassion for this lowly person. 
And that's the guy who Jesus says has faith. So, so notice that the servant is not healed because of his own faith. We don't even see that the servant has any clue who Jesus is, let alone has any faith in him. So the servant's faith is not in play. It's somebody else's faith that's in play that brings healing to the servant. Sometimes that's the pathway compassion takes. Sometimes that's the path that healing and the gospel and hope take. Because those of us who have compassion demonstrate somebody else and it brings faith, it brings healing, it brings hope for another. And so here we have all these things at play, a shocking story, and it gets better. Let's continue in the story. Soon afterward, most likely in the next day or so, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, which is on the way to nowhere. Nain is about 20 or 30 miles, mostly uphill. It's a rough trek, and there's nothing there. This is an out-of-the-way village. You don't pass through Nain. You don't pass by Nain. You go to Nain because you're lost or you took a wrong turn. Like Nain is not a destination vacation spot. And so they end up in Nain and a large crowd had been following Jesus. But at the same time they show up in this village, a funeral procession was coming out as Jesus and his entourage approached the village gate. Now in those days, a city would have walls built around it for protection, protect from anything you can think of that you would need protection from. Armies and invaders and animals and other stuff and bandits. So you have these walls around the city and you have just a handful of gates to allow you in. But in a small village, you'd have a wall built around the city and you'd have one gate, the village gate, just one way in, one way out. And so here you have Jesus and the crew following him and they are just amped up with excitement. They've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen this guy. They, they heard about this guy whose slave got healed. Jesus didn't even have to go there. He just spoke and it happened. That They are anticipating what's coming next. What's Jesus going to do next? I mean, so there's just this exuberant hope and this excitement. And there's this life in this place. And as they approach the town, out comes a funeral procession. Now, now what do you do when you see a funeral? When you see the line of cars going by led by the hearse up. You pull over and you show some respect and you, you pause. Maybe you pray for the people who are hurting at the loss. But then when it passes, you go on about your way. Well, in that day, in that culture, it was customary that as a funeral procession went by, that for some people, they would step in and they would begin walking in the procession in the back. They would join in to say, you're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your hurt and your suffering. Which, we have compassion for you. We, we're in this with you. We will join in so that you don't have to be alone. We'll mourn with you. And so you might get strangers who join in this funeral procession. So here you have all of Jesus' people, so much hope and excitement and anticipation, wondering, is our joy going to turn to mourning? Because their, their hope has just collided with extreme hopelessness, with loss and despair. Like now, now what do we do? Are we supposed to join in with but, but, oh, okay, what are we going to do, Jesus? And, and notice what happens here in the story. Notice who it is. The young man who had died was a widow's only son. A large crowd from the village was with her. The widow's only son. It's not the first time this woman's been through this. There she is, alone, leading this procession. And all the memories 
of doing this before at the loss of her husband have just flooded back and, and come surfacing back. All that pain and agony, now we're here again. And at this time, at the loss of her boy. And, and from what we could tell in this story, digging into that culture, this guy's probably about 20 years old. And, and I've officiated a lot of funerals in my time. And, and I know death always stings. No matter how much hope we have, there's still pain because there's a brokenness there. There's loss. And so funerals, there's always some level of pain. But the worst is when it's like this. Like, like this is not the way it's supposed to be. The, the young are to bury the old. Kids are supposed to bury their parents, and it's not supposed to be the other way around. And for any parent who's ever navigated that loss, like that's a level of pain just in a category all its own. And we grieve for you. We hurt for you. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. And so here's this widow trying to wrap her head around the situation. And to make matters worse, in those days, women were, like, they were just stuck in a system that depended so much on the men in their lives. That Their income, their housing, their livelihood, their security, dependent upon the husband, and if the husband passed, then on the sons. And so here she is, husbandless and sonless and desperate, just stuck in despair. What will be it come of her? What, what will happen? Like no hope, no future. She might lose her house. She has no income. I mean, everything is just, but I don't even think her mind has gone there yet. Because also customary in those days is when somebody would die, they would begin immediately prepping that body for burial and try to bury the person within that same day. And if it happened later in the evening or at night, then they would prep the body and then early the next day they would go out for a funeral. So judging on the time that it took Jesus and the crew to get there, they walk up to this town. It probably is just hours after the boy has died. And this woman is leading the funeral procession still in shock just reeling from the loss of her son, all the agony, all the pain, all the despair, all the hopelessness. She's not even thinking about her future. She can't even wrap her mind around what's going on right then in the present. Her head hurting from the tears. Her vision blurred from the tears, trying to put one foot in front of the other, doing everything she can just to walk in front of her son's dead body. So much agony, so much pain, so much despair. And to make things worse for people in that culture, so often when a woman was in a situation like this, when anybody was in a situation like this, they would assign to that person, well, that's God's wrath on you because of some sin in your life. The bad things happening to you are because of your sin. Like it's her fault that her husband and now her son are dead. Your sin brought this on you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And so in that context, with all of that going on, when Jesus sees her, his heart overflows with compassion. And he says to her, don't cry. Don't cry. Now those words spoken from anyone else for any other reason would be so insensitive, so painful. Because we know, don't we? 
Like when we are there with somebody who's struggling, with somebody who's hurting, we tell them, don't cry, don't, don't cry. But it's not for them. It's because we don't know what to do with their tears. Don't cry because I can't handle it. You're making me uncomfortable. I, I don't know what to do. I can't heal. I can't fix. I can't solve the problem that's making you cry. So please, please don't make this any more uncomfortable for me. Now, on an aside, I just want to let you know, as a guy who's got a whole lot of words, but a guy who's also had a pretty fair amount of interacting with people during the time of loss. One of the greatest lessons I've ever learned is in that moment, they don't need our words. They don't need us to heal, to fix, to solve, to offer some empty cliche, oh, better place, oh, it'll all be better, oh, one day. They don't need any of that. In fact, the very thing they might need what they might need most is for our tears to join theirs. For us just to sit beside them. Maybe even just slump to the floor. Just let them know. You're not alone. You're not alone in your grief or your suffering or your pain. We're with you. Now listen, if that's ever you, your church is here for you. We're here for you. You're not alone. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus. Well, he's Jesus. So when he says don't cry, it's not because he says, listen, I don't know how to handle your grief. I don't know how to handle this discomfort you feel. It's not because she's making him uncomfortable. He says, don't cry because I'm the comforter. I'm about to do something to take those tears away. And in the very next scene, Jesus walks over to the coffin. A coffin is a generous term here. The Greek word, these people don't have enough money for a coffin the way we feel, the way we think of it. This boy is laid out either on a canvas or wooden stretcher, just a slab of wood. He's been wrapped up in cloth and they're taking him out on a slab of wood, maybe as nice as a canvas stretcher. And Jesus walks up to that and he does the unthinkable and he touches the stretcher the boy's on. Now, as a rabbi, as a teacher, you don't do that. Nobody in that culture does that, but especially a teacher. He knows better because as soon as you touch that, then you're an unclean. That is off limits. Not okay. Jesus walks up, he touches it, and they stop. Of course they do. Because they're like, what's this dude doing? He's interrupting a funeral. He's talking to the mom. He's touching this thing. And Jesus looks at the young man and he says, young man, I tell you, get up. Get up. Now, if we just pause right there, get up. That would seem crazy or insensitive. But Jesus is who Jesus is. And the dead boy sat up and began talking. And I know that you want to know what that boy had to say. (laughs) The dead guy sits up. What is he saying in that moment? I mean, he pulls the the barrel wrapping from his face. What's up, guys? What's going on? What are we doing here? What's for lunch? Kind of hungry. I mean, (laughs) what is the conversation? What comes out of this guy's mouth? And you just imagine the shock of what's going on in that moment. Now, if we back up a little bit, there's this really amazing thing that's transpiring here. Because why Jesus is doing this? We see just a couple slides before this, before he does that, that Jesus' heart had gone out to the woman, right? He saw his heart overflowed with compassion. We got to dig into that. Because this phrase, his heart overflowed with compassion, is only used three times in Luke's gospel. Luke only records three instances of this statement being used. 
Two of them are when Jesus is telling stories. When Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, which itself is pretty crazy because Samaritans were not seen as good to the Jewish people. They were the pagan people. They were the outsiders. They were the half-breeds. They got it all wrong. But Jesus tells a story that this Jewish guy was injured. He was on the side of the road. And the, the religious leaders and the other religious people, like they kept as far from that guy as they could. They, the priest walks by and the others walk by and they leave this guy there to die on his own because they don't want to be inconvenienced. They don't want to become unclean. But the Samaritan guy sees him and his heart overflows with compassion. And he goes to the guy and he cares for him and he nurtures him and he pays for him and he brings hope and healing to him. This this moment of extreme compassion. The other place it's used is in the story of the prodigal. When the, when the son is returning after having run off and taking his inheritance and squandering it all and living in a way he should not be living and bringing shame to the family name and then he's returning home in shame and despair, about to beg for a servant role in his dad's house. And the dad, who's been waiting expectantly for his son, looks out and sees his son coming and from a long way off. And the dad runs to him with his arms open wide. My boy, my boy, welcome home. You're back. And the boy's like, dad, I don't deserve it. He's like, shush that boy. Give me this, come on in. Big embrace, he loves him. He's like, it's time to party. It's time to celebrate. You were dead and now you're alive again to us. Welcome home. Because the dad's heart overflowed with extreme compassion and mercy. This phrase that, that Luke records Jesus having here for this woman is this incredibly moving, active, merciful compassion. So Jesus awakens this dead boy. And the boy begins to talk. And then we see that Jesus gave him back to his mom. And you just picture what happens right after that, right? Like the funeral stops and they go back into town. And all the people who hadn't joined in the procession watch this funeral that's just gone by come back in. But way too soon, she's like, whoa, whoa, there's no way they've had enough time to make it to the cemetery, to the burial, all that kind of stuff. And then they see the dead boy walking hand in hand with his mom. like, what is up with that? That's not the way things go normally. And so great fear swept over the crowd and they praised God saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us today and God has visited his people today. And then, and then they just went home and like, well, that was a good church service. That's fun. No, they did what we are supposed to do. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Because when you see Jesus do something miraculous, you tell everybody you can about it. And church, it should be the same for us. When we see Jesus moving in this place, when we see God doing something in this place, we should be telling everyone. Every time we see somebody get baptized, we should be like, hey man, God is still on the move. You should see what he's up to. You should come and check it out. You need hope, I know the place. I know the hope giver. Because that's what happened there. And, and this incredible news, that they say, you know, a new prophet has come up amongst us. The reason they say that is because of what's happening in this passage. We looked at that little phrase, Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's the same exact wording that's used when Elijah, the prophet of old, had brought life to a widow's son. Now we gotta understand this in context. Because just a little bit before 
these events took place of healing the servant and resurrecting this young boy. Just a little bit before this, three chapters in your Bible back in Luke chapter four, Jesus had been in the synagogue and he's declaring his mission. He uses a scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and he says, listen, here's what's happening. It says, I have come to set the captives free, to bring good news to the poor people. I've come to preach good to everybody. Listen, this is being fulfilled in you today. The one you've been waiting for is here, and it's me. And the people get super excited, like, yes, this, this, this guy's something. Is he the Messiah? I don't know. Is he a prophet? I don't know. But then Jesus doesn't live well enough alone, and he, like, starts nudging his people. He says, hey, but by the way, you're going to ask me to do all these miracles and signs, and you want me to do it among you. The problem is, you want me to do it among you because you think you're worthy. And in Luke chapter four, he says, hey, you remember way back when Naaman, that pagan foreign military leader had leprosy and the prophet killed him. But yet surely there were many Israelites who had leprosy and were not healed. And the people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. So like this Naaman guy, this foreign military leader who finds healing kind of reminds us a little bit of the Roman officer, doesn't it? And then immediately after that, Jesus says, and you remember when Elijah raised the widow's son and they were outsiders as well. And surely there were many widows in Israel of the Jewish people, of the very people of God, but none of their sons came back to life, did they? God's up to something and he's stretching us and he's moving beyond us and he's going somewhere you might not be comfortable going. And he basically says, you remember earlier, you know, the, the Jewish people said, this guy's worthy. And the Romans said, I'm not worthy. And what we see is the people who think they're worthy are the people who may be putting the barriers between them and God. The people who say, I am following God because I'm good have missed it. But the ones who say, I'm not good enough, but God is good to me. They're the ones who are getting and Jesus says, I'm up to something. And so then just a little while later, after telling those stories, and when Jesus tells them those stories, by the way, they take him up to the top of a hill. They're so mad at him, they're gonna throw him off a cliff. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not this hill, not this way, not this day. Different hill, different day, different way. Just wait for it. There's gonna be a cross. It'll make sense later. And Jesus leaves. And so here he is, just a little while later, healing similar people in similar but even greater ways. And Jesus is saying, y'all need to know something. Sometimes the one who has faith is the one who invites compassion. But I'm the compassionate one. And so sometimes I'm gonna demonstrate compassion that produces faith. Sometimes faith comes on the back end of my compassion. And I'm God, so I'm gonna do it the way I'm gonna do it. See, Jesus is the great grave robber. He robbed the servant's grave. He robbed the widow's son's grave. Eventually he would walk out of his own grave. And Jesus is the one who walks up to dead things that are off limits and unacceptable and he touches them but instead of being unclean himself, he brings dead things back to life. He does something incredible there because that's what Jesus does. The compassion of Jesus compelled him to bring dead things back to life. That's why he came that's what he did. That's what he still does. John declared, John recorded these words of Jesus who said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come. I've come that you would have life and have that life full and abundant and overflowing. 
Friend, Jesus wants you to experience life to its fullest. Problem is we're surrounded by death. What we read in the scriptures that our sin and all of us have sinned and, and our sin has a consequence and that consequence is death. When, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, you are dead in your sins. Like zombies walking around, dead in your sins. Spiritually dead, cut off. But God, who's rich in mercy, who's rich in compassion and grace, has given us Jesus, has given us new life through Jesus because he wants us to experience life in him and a restored relationship. So I don't know. I don't know for you what death has come in. I don't know for you what, what, what feels dead in your life. I don't know what misery and suffering and pain you experience. I, I don't know what mistakes you've made. I, I don't know what feels dead. Maybe it's your marriage or your job or your dreams. Maybe you're feeling dead in your addiction or dead in that hidden sin of yours. I don't know where you're feeling death, but I know that it surrounds us and it invades us all. And I do know this, that God wants to breathe life into that area of your life. No matter what, no matter who you are, Jesus wants to give life to you and restore those dead areas of your life. See, Jesus is the great grave robber and he wants to rob your grave and he wants to rob those areas where the enemy is trying to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to bring you back to life and it's time to allow him to do that. See, some of you, some of you are like searching for life among lifeless things, just grabbing at the things of this world, trying to find life through things that will never give you life and there's one place you're gonna find it in Jesus. And so you just need to put your old way to death. Because until you die to your old way, die to your old self, until you admit that your sins are killing you, then you'll never be freed up to have life and receive it from God. And today's the day. Like if that's you and you've never made that decision, today's the day. Until you drown the old ways in the water of baptism and you come up in a brand new life, you put your old life to death and then you come up in a resurrected form, brand new in Jesus with hope and peace, with joy with an ever after life. He wants that for you. And if you've never had that, today is your day, don't wait. But for those of us who do know that, then we need to do something about that. See, the compassion of Jesus still compels him to bring dead things back to life. That includes you, that includes me. So for those of us who follow Jesus, our faith should produce in us a compassion that moves us to go to people, that moves us to bring life wherever we go to whomever we speak without limitation. That, that we know that we are surrounded by people who are hurting, who are broken, broken homes and broken marriages and broken hearts and broken lives, broken by addictions and broken by decisions and on and on, people who are lost and lonely and hurting, people who are desperate for hope. And we can't, none of us can fix all of it, but each one of us can do something about it. And God has called his people to be hope bringers, to combat the cancel culture in which we live. Where everyone else in this world says, you're different than me, I'm gonna cut you off and I'm gonna cancel you. But not God's people. God's people say, no, no, no. We're gonna combat cancel culture with a compassion culture. And we're gonna go to those people because compassion bridges the gap between whatever difference we have. And compassion says, I will care about you and I will enter into your pain and I will be acquainted with your pain regardless of the differences we have because my God still loves you. And he's calling us to do that. 
And I don't know exactly what that compassion is gonna look like in your life. I don't know if it means that you're just gonna sit with somebody and hear their story, or you're just gonna sit in silence and enter into their pain, or maybe you're gonna bring them a meal, or maybe you're gonna make a visit to that person. Maybe you're gonna make a visit to that prison. Maybe you're gonna enter in to the pain of another. Maybe you're gonna go down and volunteer in a mission downtown, or you're gonna help the person who's wrestling with a life-changing decision about the new life inside of her. Maybe you're gonna work with her husband. Maybe you're gonna get involved in big brothers and big sisters. You're gonna mentor somebody. I don't know, maybe God's calling you to something really big, like to adopt or to foster, or maybe he's calling you to like start selling stuff so you can start giving more to people who need it. Maybe you're gonna buy a car for a family that is in despair. Maybe you're gonna talk to the person who doesn't have a home and you're gonna say, you got a home now, it's with me. Come on to my house and live with me. And I know those things seem crazy and they seem reckless, but it also seems like that's what the gospel does. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not pointing shame. Church, I'm saying I need to increase my my generosity quotient. I need to increase my compassion quotient right with you. That God is calling all of us as his church to be people of compassion who bring hope and bring life wherever we go to whomever we encounter. So for whatever that would look like to you, I just wanna ask you this question. I wanna leave you with this. Who in your life needs compassion from you? Like who is the person who comes to mind right now who needs your compassion? And how are you gonna deliver? How are you gonna bring compassion to? And if that person's you, if the person who most needs compassion is you, if you got something broken and dead and hurting and hopeless in your life, then don't hide, don't pretend, don't fake it, but come, come today to Jesus, come today to his church, come to us and let us just sit with you, let us help you, let us experience his compassion together. No judgment, no shame, but the compassion and grace of God together. Come, come today, let's pray. God, we're grateful that you are the God of compassion and that you are the God of mercy, that you don't leave us where we deserve, that none of us are worthy, God. We claim as that Roman officer, we are not worthy. And yet you freely heal and give life to us anyway. And so God, for those who are here today in person or online, who are hurting, who are broken, who are wrestling because they are dead in their sin, God, I pray that today would be the turning point, the decision. God, I pray that right now they would pray with us this prayer, that they would simply say, God, I need you. I'm tired of finding alone. I'm tired of trying to be my own savior. I'm trying, tired of trying to be good enough. I'm, try, I'm tired of trying to find life among lifeless things. God, I need your life today. And so I turn it to you, that you would be my leader, Lord Jesus, that you alone are my savior. And I give it to you and I surrender to you. And if you're praying that prayer today, don't walk alone. But you come to us after this service. And for all of those who have made that decision, who've put our hope and our trust, our faith in you. God, would your mercy, would your, would your compassion compel us to be people of compassion? Would it increase our faith and our trust in you that we would do such radical things to be hope bringers, to be people of compassion to everyone we meet, whatever the cost, and that we would count all the cost for you and your glory alone, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus.